0: Collections can reveal quite a bit about histories, culture, and people as a whole. But every once in a while, you come across an object that is closely linked to a true event or a real person. We'll be looking at three items that are based on true stories, and they are all inside the collection. welcome to The Collection Podcast. My name is Chloe McGulchie, and this week's episode is Based on a True Story. Throughout the podcast, I've shared some truly fascinating objects with interesting stories to tell, but we have yet to look at items that have a direct link to a specific person. Now, there's just something enthralling about the term Based on a True Story. It makes books and movies all the more intriguing, And perhaps it is human nature to attach ourselves to things that we believe to be true or real. Today's objects are particularly anecdotal, and I agree that their true stories make them all the more fascinating. The first item we're going to look at comes from a familiar location, the Tory Collection. If you remember from last week's attribution episode, the Tory Collection holds many important works, including Adrian DeVries' Cain and Abel. Here again to discuss is Neil Leviter.
1: My name is Neil Leviter. I'm the Curator of the University's Art Collection and Deputy Head of Museums. So the Adrian De Vries, Cain and Abel, arguably, is our most significant work of art in all of the collection. I mean, this is just a fantastic piece of work anyway, and it is modelled on a previous work by Jean Bologna, which itself was modelled on a previous work by Michelangelo, so there's a real link to um, the lineage of Renaissance sculpture just in that one piece or that one kind of um, subject matter. But the story of the specific uh, commission of this work makes it more interesting, um, in my opinion.
0: Adrian de Cain and Abel is a pretty straightforward bronze sculpture and is a fairly literal interpretation of the biblical tale of Cain slaying Abel. Realistically, the story could end here. But Neil is right in saying that the story of this particular work is what makes it so interesting as it involves another pair of feuding brothers.
1: So that uh, dates from 1612 um, by the artist Adrian de Vries. So de Vries was the most important sculptor after the death of Jean Bologna. So Jean Bologna being the most important sculptor after the death of uh, Michelangelo. So there's a real kind of, they're the big three really. So de Vries, was court sculptor under Rudolf II, so this was commissioned by Rudolf II.
0: Rudolf II of Austria was the King of Hungary and Bohemia and the Holy Roman Emperor between 1576 and 1612. He was an ineffectual leader who is often credited as the cause for the Thirty Years' War. However, he is better known as a legendary patron of the arts and sciences. He commissioned work from some of the most important European artists, architects, scientists, philosophers, and humanists, and under his rule, he turned Prague into a cultural epicenter of Europe. Of his many commissions, one of my favorites is a self-portrait of Rudolf as Vertumnus by Giuseppe Archimbaldo, which you probably would be familiar with as his face is totally comprised of fruits and vegetables.
1: He commissioned alchemists and stuff. So no, he was a a great patron of the arts, um, but all manner of kind of natural sciences and stuff as well and really experimenting with quite strange things in some respect, or we would think of now.
0: Rudolf also had a particular fascination with the occult, which included alchemy as well as astrology and even magic.
1: Uh, Yeah, very eccentric and, well, uh, eccentric in one respect, but I think he used a lot of the money of, like, the money of his um, court on lavish experiments, essentially. So he was, I don't think he was an entirely popular ruler.
0: Rudolf was an avid collector and spared no expense in building his princely kunstkammer, or cabinet of curiosities, which was so big and full of stuff that Rudolf had to expand Prague Castle. This also included a botanical garden and a menagerie of exotic animals, including a live tiger. Imagine, if you will, a 16th century Xanadu. Unfortunately, this also became a sort of fortress for Rudolf II, as he was prone to melancholic episodes, extreme agitation, and paranoia, which again hindered effective ruling.
1: So, Rudolf II was involved in a long standing dispute over the throne. Um, over his throne, I should say, his brother Matthias. Uh, Yeah, they battled for a long, long time and eventually uh, Rudolf died in prison uh, at the hands of his brother. He was overthrown, imprisoned and de Vries, as uh, his royal sculptor, was commissioned to make a piece depicting Cain and Abel which of course shows the the murder of uh, one brother over another.
0: So I'm curious about the commission because it had to have happened while he was in prison, but...
1: The work, was, uh, the work was certainly completed when he was in prison, but I think it was commissioned just before. Just so before. It, it was certainly smack bang in the middle when all this was yeah. going on. And it's just so specific um, to what was happening in Rudolph's court at the
0: time. In 1605, after a tense conflict with the Ottoman Empire, the Habsburg Archdukes and his own family pressured Rudolf II to cede his crown to his younger brother, Matthias. And in 1608, this took effect as Matthias began to take on more leadership roles, becoming ultimately the more active ruler. Now, if you need a small refresher about Cain and Abel, Cain was the older brother and the builder of cities, similar to Rudolf. When Cain and Abel present offerings to God, God was pleased with Abel's offering, but not with Cain's. So Abel, the younger brother, seems to be the more favored son. And Cain, in an act of jealousy, murders his brother. Rudolf obviously didn't murder Matthias, but you can imagine what it must feel like to be forced out of your own throne because your brother is a more preferable ruler. It's pretty clear that the commission of this particular vignette was a reflection of Rudolf's feelings and probably a projection of what he'd like to do to Matthias.
1: It's such a kind of clear statement from uh, one brother to another. Yeah.
0: De Vries' Cain and Abel is a reflection of a true story, and its depictions are based off of biblical figures. But this next sculpture happens to not only be based on a true story, but is also based on a real person. When we look at sculptures, we often take for granted who the model was. They're kind of a nameless figure adapted into a work of art. But what if I told you that one sculpture in the Edinburgh College of Arts Plaster Cast Collection technically is a real person with a name and a story? He goes by Smuglarius.
2: We were both completely overwhelmed with that. The thought of being able to give a name to this person. And just to even begin to visualize him and, and feel like you, you, can, you maybe even knew him. You know, it was ridiculous.
0: This is Joan Smith. She, along with social anthropologist, Dr. Jean Knizzo, cracked the case on who the real Smuglerius is. Here's Joan.
2: I'm uh, Joan Smith. I'm currently director of undergraduate studies here at ECA. Um, and I teach in painting. Part of what I do in teaching is I teach anatomy. So I teach a, a course called Anatomy and Art, where we look at things like Smuglarious and we look at, you know, the the idea of objects that have been created to teach artists about anatomy specifically. And Smuglarious is one of them. You know, Smuglarious was a, a cast made specifically for the purpose of teaching art students about anatomy. At the, so it was students at the Royal Academy that it was it was made for. So I'm kind of interested in that sort of continuum. The fact that I'm also using it to teach students about anatomy all those hundreds of years later.
0: You're probably thinking, wait, anatomy? Allow me to explain. Smuglerius is a life-size cast and the body is completely flayed. He has no skin.
2: They're called a mm-hmm. Um And they're, they're so, it's around about the eight, 18th century seemed to be the time when a lot of ecorchets were made. It was kind of a fashion <laughs> to flay bodies and pose them and cast them in plaster. And use them for sort of to demonstrate anatomy. And William Hunter, who's the anatomist who who created Smugglerius, had also he'd done a few of these sort of flayed figures before. He and his brother uh, John Hunter ran the Great William's, uh, the Great Windmill Street um, anatomical theatre in London, and people people could could go along and. And sort of buy a ticket and kind of view the dissection. It was, it was kind of a great curiosity. People were really interested in how the body worked. So I think that sort of period seems to have been the kind of great flowering of anatomical écorché cast making. But there was also artists um, making uh, sculptures.
0: The original cast was made in 1776 under the direction of William Hunter. Hunter was apparently so impressed by the muscular form of the body that he said it was too perfect to dissect any further. Instead, he employed sculptor Agostino Carlini to cast the body for the Royal Academy in London. This original bronze is lost, but a plaster copy was made in 1854 by William Pink, which now resides in the Edinburgh College of Art.
2: It's funny because I was teaching anatomy for, for years using Smuglarious, and he was in a cupboard in the basement of the art college and I would wheel him out and sort of show them to students and kind of think, oh, this is an amazing thing. And, and somehow not really, it's ridiculous to say it, but not really think about it. I mean, I'm just like like most people, you just kind of use it as a teaching object. And it was only a few years ago when I um, made the acquaintance of Jean Knizzo, who's uh, an anthropologist from the from U- University of Edinburgh as well. And she was actually in my evening class. So I was teaching a painting evening class. So she she was in my class. And we were sort of we got talking, and she said, "Oh, it'd be great to maybe do something together." What you know? Can you think of you know things that you'd be interested in? And I was sort of came up with one or two ideas. I said, "Well, you know, you know, kind of just a few bits and pieces here and there." And I said, "Oh, and also we've got the flayed man in the basement," and she just completely freaked
3: <laughs> when I <laughs> said that.
2: She went, well, You have to show me this for flayed man," and. and it, you know, you just, I was just so used to him being there. He didn't really I think sometimes when things are so familiar, you don't question them because you're just looking at him every day, you know. And it was only because I had to show him to another person who hadn't seen him before that I suddenly realised what an amazing thing this was. So we decided immediately to work together. As soon as she saw the figure, she thought, wow, this is an incredible, incredible cast. Together,
0: Joan and Jean dug deep into the archives and found several pieces to the puzzle of Smuglarious, now, it's important to note that Smuglarius is a sort of mocking Latin name, likening the cast to grander classical statues, but also recognizing that this flayed body was that of a criminal, more specifically a smuggler or thief. It's not uncommon for, um, for anatomical bodies to have been criminals or to have possibly been grave robbed. Yeah. Um, but I'm just so amazed that you're able to, I mean, obviously you're working with an anthropologist, mm. to... Li- very conclusively link one person to one body. Yeah.
2: Well, we can't be entirely conclusive about mm-hmm. it because, I mean, the records, they were it was deliberately kept quiet who this person was. I mean, sure. I mean they, they didn't want to glorify a criminal, but <laughs> we know it was someone that was hanged at Tyburn in 1776, oh, 1775, rather. Um, so, and it was part of the punishment that, you know, in those days that if someone was hanged, Part of the punishment was that they they didn't get a Christian burial. Their body was given for dissection. So, so we kind of we definitely know that. So it's all about looking at dates and who would be the likeliest sort of candidate. So, there's a bit of debate about it because we 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 based our date 1775 on a a letter that was written by a, it was a young sculptor who was um, studying in London and he it was written in 1775 and he described. Having seen these two men hanged at Tyburn, and one of them was taken away and dissected, and then posed as the dying gall, so it was pretty, pretty definitely that person. But whether the date, whether you can rely on the dates, is another matter, you know, um, because there are other, there are other theories about it being a, a year later, um, which would give a different name. So you can't be entirely sure, but you can, you can sort of construct an argument for a likely candidate, if you like.
0: And that likely candidate is James Langer. Langer was a petty thief, or footpad caught stealing a coat, fob watch, and five shillings off a pawnbroker in Hyde Park. He was convicted on February 21st at Old Bailey and hanged on April 12th, 1776. So by cross-referencing the accounts in the letter with the local hanging records, they were able to come up with a name.
2: But the Old Bailey, um, records are, are incredibly detailed and you can you can read the transcript of the trial of the individual you know all you know this kind of things he if it, if it was James Langer this person that we think it is just all this sort of whole story about him being a highway robber and he was you know and he was caught because he was he was found in bed with a woman and the, the, the things that he'd stolen were in the drawer in the room and it was all this kind of whole picture that you could you could build in your mind and um, And it made me, I don't know, when you look at the cast, he's an amazing thing to look at. You can really see the detail of his muscles, but you can't really see his face very well, because his face is looking down. And I I, I sort of photographed, I had my camera and I was just kind of photographing his his face. And when I looked at his face as well, I kind of, you know, I felt much more connection, you know, and like he's got a, a bit of a broken nose and... And his, his mouth looks a bit swollen, like he's been punched or something. And it's just, oh, it's just really amazing to sort of make that connection. Because of a name, it's incredible that it, it does make a difference, I
0: think. James Langer was a former soldier, which would make his body perfect for an écorché. As mentioned earlier, criminals' cadavers were often donated to science and dissected, which is a strange notion that a real person can become an object.
2: The whole society that could create... A thing like that. You can't imagine. I mean, people compare it to Gunther von Hagens. Now, I don't think it's the same thing. Have you heard of Gunther von Hagens?
0: Yeah. Turns out I had. Gunther von Hagens is responsible for the various body worlds exhibits, one of which I've been to.
2: He, he's um, it's this kind of slightly freakish anatomist that uh, <laughs> people donate their bodies to him so that he can, he plasticizes them, so he injects them with a sort of plastic solution. Mm-hmm. And he preserves the bodies in all sorts of different poses, and then he. Um, it basically, it's a kind of it's a bit of a freak show. It's and he basically the, the, this it's an exhibit that travels the world where it shows dissected bodies, but people have donated their bodies for that purpose. You know, so it's a bit of a weird one. But Smuglerius, would not. I mean, he was not. Um, there was no consent involved. His body was just basically taken and used for this purpose, so it's a very, it says something very different about the kind of society that, that this happened in, that, that you could just go, no, I'm having that body, without, without there being any consent whatsoever, you know. So, um, so we got quite excited about that, that whole idea of the society that the, this cast could have been even created in, the fact that an anatomist could just say, oh, I'll have him, I'll take, him, take his skin off, I'll pose him in this classical pose, make a cast of him, stick him in the Royal Academy and that's okay,
0: What's interesting is that this cadaver went from being a mere anatomical object to an art object and an important teaching tool for both schools. Yeah,
2: it's an amazing pose because um, it's it's, the pose is based on the dying Gaul which is a classical pose. So again, that tells us something about the society in which it was created that, that it was seen as an important reference to make that you would make that connection with Greek and Roman art, you know. so And it would have been a pose that people of the time would have recognized immediately. So it's a sort of um, noble savage cut down in battle, so which kind of was appropriate for a, a a criminal hanged, and you know it's it's a moment between life and death, so th- it's a really poignant pose anyway. So h- art historically speaking, it's an interesting pose, but to draw it's also really interesting because it's 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 I think previous um, écorchés that William Hunter had made were just kind of like standing figures. And that was fine. It was quite interesting, but they were just kind of standing there, and there was no dynamic in the in the kind of movement of the body. But Smugglerius is sort of twisting, and you're leaning forward, and you can see really interesting things going on in the muscles of the back and the front at the same time. You know, and and uh, so the sort of twists help highlight different muscle groups, and it's one of the things I f- I find incredible about it is that it was, you know, posed, obviously it was a dead body that was posed, and yet you still get a sense of the muscle contraction holding the the leg in a particular way or the neck in a particular way. So I just, I think it's an amazing feat that they managed to get that kind of life into it, if you like. You know, they would have had to prop him up using sort of posts or something to hold him in that position. So just the fact that, it, you know, His muscles look like they're holding the body in position rather than it being just kind of propped in some way. So it's incredibly lifelike. It's a weird thing to say for a dead body, but it is.
0: Between the exposed muscles, the classical dying gall pose, and the link to James Langer, Smugglarius is quite lifelike. He is a unique item in that he transcends the inanimate object into one with a life and a true story to tell. So I think
2: to, to. take it away from just being an anonymous sculpture or an anonymous cast that you just kind of think, oh that's interesting, to suddenly think about the, the actual person, I think that, that really kind of took it onto another level for both of us. You know? So whether it's James Langer or, or this other person that it could be, it's, it's just the fact that it's a real person that brought it home. And I think that's, that's the thing that's so exciting about this cast.
0: The final item is particularly special in that it is not only based on a true story, but it was made by the real person. It's a scrapbook. It's also part of the Lothian Health Services Archive, which makes this something of an anomaly,
3: as this book of personal ephemera is tucked away with medical documents. So many of the things that we have are institutional. We have a lot, for example, about patients, about people who are treated in hospitals, but these are always written from the perspective of doctors, of nurses, of physicians, for example. So we have relatively few original voices coming through. um, And they're all usually written through the slant of um, a vocation of... profession, for example. And what I like about the scrapbook is you can see pieces of the individual beyond that in there. This is Louise. My name is Louise Williams and I'm the archivist at Lothian Health Services Archive. I'll start by talking about one of my favourite holdings that we have and that is a scrapbook from um, an actress and socialite who eventually became a nurse during the First World War and her name was Yvonne Fitzroy.
0: Yvonne Fitzroy was born on October 17, 1891. Yvonne grew up in the world of comfort and privilege of aristocratic London, aspiring to become an actress. When you first open her scrapbook, it is plastered with plays, scripts, and theater clippings. So it's unseemly that a Bohemian socialite would contribute so greatly to the war efforts in World War
3: I. During the First World War, um, she became more interested in politics, more interested in world events, and she ended up being a nurse for a voluntary aid detachment, a Red Cross hospital, and the Red Cross would train people who had no um, hospital nurse training to be nurses, to do basic nursing tasks in hospitals that they had around the country, often in old country houses. Um, She started off working in a hospital in Derbyshire and then went on to volunteer for the Scottish Women's Hospitals in their London division.
0: In the scrapbook, we find an appointment letter to the Scottish Women's Hospital of Foreign Service dated August 5th, 1916, appointing Fitzroy as an orderly. Though this is Yvonne Fitzroy's scrapbook, much of the scrapbook includes Elsie Ingalls, who was a Scottish doctor and suffragette whose medical career intersects with
3: Fitzroy's. Now, Scottish women's hospitals were founded by Elsie Ingalls on the outbreak of the First World War. Elsie um, Ingalls wanted to establish all-female units, which served on the front line, so in very tough battle conditions, alongside men. And she went to the um, the government at the time and um, offered her services to the... Um, Scottish office and there's a very famous quotation in which um, the person to whom she was talking told her that the best thing that she could do was to go home and sit still. But she didn't go home and sit still. Um, She ended up putting these voluntary um, groups of women doctors, nurses together. Um, First she went to France and... um, She um, served in northern France, first in Calais, and then later they set up a hospital in an abbey in Royamont. And later she ended up um, providing units to all sorts of places like Greece, Malta, Serbia, Russia, Romania, Um, and their service became a, a big part of medical care during the First World War, although never under the approval of any kind of British government. So Yvonne basically ended up joining and they had detachments all over the the country. They had offices. One of them was in London and that's where Yvonne ended up joining in 1916. She ended up going to Romania um, to help Serbian troops. The Scottish Women's Hospital had previously helped troops in Serbia um, until they were basically pushed out of Serbia by the German army. Then um, they were based in Romania and Russia. So the women's hospitals had formed a link with them and went out to help them to nurse them again. And um, Yvonne ended up going out um, on the same ship as Elsie Ingalls and serving under Elsie Ingalls in the same unit. Much of this time is
0: documented in letters between Fitzroy and her parents, covering September 1916 to January 1917. In them, she discusses her working conditions, daily life, leisure time, and her relationship with Elsie Ingalls. This time is punctuated by a letter detailing a Russian medal of meritous conduct, as well as a certificate from the British Red Cross and the Order of St. John. However, the end of her service in World War
3: I was not the end of her scrapbook. Um, After the war, um, her taste for adventure wasn't really um, satisfied. So um, she ended up serving as a secretary to um, the Viceroy's wife in India in the mid-1920s. Um, And later she went um, around Canada as well. Um, And I think from her scrapbook we also find a certificate from the Red Cross, which implies that she also worked voluntarily during the um, Second World War in medicine as well. And quite a lot of these periods of her life are reflected in the scrapbook.
0: Her scrapbook is quite interesting in that it very much depicts a military life as well as a social one during wartime we truly find an interesting mix of ephemera. Um,
3: It's probably about 30 centimeters by 45, about 6 centimeters thick. Um, And in there, there are a mixture of newspaper cuttings, um, collected ephemera like theater programs, for example, because obviously she was an actress. There are drawings. Um, there are reviews for the books that she wrote because she wrote a book following her service with Elsie Ingalls um, called um, With the Scottish Women in Romania. And she also wrote a book after she'd served in India um, as the secretary to the wife of the Viceroy at the time as well. So it reflects her entire Entire career, really, and there are some gems in there as well. Um, There's her original luggage label from when she went out in 1916 um, on the ship to Romania with Elsie Ingalls, and there are also cards and mementos from her time in India. There are some strange things as well, such as there's an autograph from H.G. Wells. Um, HG Wells had contributed to a magazine that she helped to edit when she was working as a VAD Red Cross nurse before she joined the Scottish Women's Hospitals. Um, this magazine was called The Eggington Howl, um, that, that was from a hospital in Derbyshire, and he's done a little cartoon of an owl. Um, and also she had a letter from Rudyard Kipling as well. So throughout the time that she was nursing, she obviously used her connections, she used her... Um, previous um, socialite sort of cultural cultured existence to um, help her in the work that she was doing as a nurse to keep a smile on the troops' faces, which I quite like. You can see um, things that Yvonne herself has selected to stick in the scrapbook that reflect key periods of her life. We're not sure where they're from, so it's kind of a detective story in a way.
0: What's fascinating about this scrapbook is that it is a little mysterious. Through pieces of ephemera, we build the narrative of a multifaceted woman and an incredible
3: true story. I like the scrapbook because to me it kind of reflects what an archive is. It's a series of traces of people's lives which have been often accidentally put together. And I quite like the fact that through whatever has happened that this book has survived and these choices that Yvonne has made about her life and what she wanted to to um, convey about her life has, has survived. And it's those kind of, I think, instinctive connections that gets people hooked onto archives. And it's certainly what got me hooked onto archives in the first place.
0: Archives, in many ways, are a glimpse into people's lives. They tell us so much about history, culture, religion, trends, and values. But every once in a while, you find objects that are so closely linked to something real and anecdotal, and those are truly special. As always, you can request to see DeVries' Cain and Abel, as well as any other items in the University's art collection, through the Center for Research Collections, located on the sixth floor of the University's main library. Smoglarious, as well as many other plaster casts, currently grace the halls of the Edinburgh College of Art, though they frequently get moved around. Last, you can request to see Yvonne Fitzroy's scrapbook as well as other items in the Lothian Health Services archives by requesting them at lhsa.lib.ed.ac.uk. Images of the specific items from this episode as well as previous episodes are available at uoeartandarchives.tumblr.com. The podcast is also provided on the blog, so you can listen and follow along with the images. The collection podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Center for Research Collections. It is written and produced by Chloe McGulchie. Executive producer is Neil Lebeder. If you'd like to know more about these items and other items in the collection, please visit the university's collection website at collections.ed.ac.uk. Better yet, you can see these items online at images.is.ed.ac.uk. My name is Chloe McGulchi, and as always, thank you for stopping by The Collection.